MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. time we live in. To me, it's been decades since the scourge of war hung so heavily over Hanukkah and Christmas, festivals of light and hope. But we soldier on here, so to speak, with our mission of adding some light and insight into the intelligence machinations that are entwined with war, diplomacy, and constructs of peace. To that end, my guest today is Glenn Korn, a distinguished former senior CIA officer who retired from the agency in June after 34 years of remarkable service across Eurasia, the Middle East, and South and Central Asia, and in Washington, where he once served as the president's senior representative on intelligence and security issues. Fluent in Russian, Turkish, and a former student of German, Arabic, Azeri, and Uzbek, Corn is currently an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C., as well as a founding member of Variag, an international consulting group. Glenn Corn, welcome to Spy Talk. It's just terrific to have you here. Thank you for taking the time. Um, wow, 34 years in intelligence, Army, State Department, CIA. You just got out in, what, June? Um, you haven't been gone that long. And now we've got all the stuff going on, Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. Do you miss it? Uh, I will say that I felt a little guilty leaving because um, there are so many threats and challenges facing the U.S. today. And the intelligence community has a lot of work on its shoulders. But I would also say that I saw that throughout my career. I mean, I don't think that today is any more different than it was when I started. We faced a lot of threats then. And what I kept seeing is, you know, I, I stayed on longer. I was going to retire in uh, 2019, but was convinced to stay because of one crisis and then another crisis, you know, Afghan withdrawal, uh, um, just any number of reasons. And, and if you stay in, you know, you could probably just die in a chair somewhere <laughs> trying to keep up with all the challenges. And I also thought that probably it's time to try and make a difference from the outside. Because when you're in that business, uh, you know, I love my career, but it's very inhibiting. There are things you can't do. For example, sit with you now and talk with you and maybe share a little bit of what I learned and saw with people outside of uh, certain buildings with fences around them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wrote a lot in my career, but only a small number of people saw it. Since I've been done, I've been writing for the media, which I enjoy. I've been teaching, which I couldn't have done before. Uh, I, I taught at our school, but that was for a limited, you know, that wasn't a subject that I was, um, mm -hmm. that I chose. That was subject, you know, tradecraft, teaching tradecraft, which was fun. And I enjoyed working with our students, uh, young officers. But uh, I like teaching graduate school. I like teaching 
topics that are not just related to intelligence. That makes sense. Well, speaking about those young people and teaching them tradecraft, we talked about this a little bit recently uh, over lunch. It was a lot of fun. Um, young people today. Uh, how do you feel? Uh, what's different about the young people today as, as opposed to when you came in, if there's any difference? Uh, you know, you got to be careful because I'm sure that every generation, and we talked about that too, there was somebody probably retired what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, who complained about my generation. Every generation probably complains about the next generation to some degree. I don't want to complain that much. I don't, I can, I'm concerned. It's not the generation that worries me. I think it's, it's us. It's the leadership. I don't know that we are explaining expectations to that, Mm. to the younger generation. I think. um, Can you be um, not explaining well enough. What do you mean by that? Well, when I came in, you know, we had certain ways of doing things, let's say my generation, but we were taught very quickly that you have to amend certain things about your lifestyle to be a intelligence officer, especially an operations officer working in the clandestine service. You have to accept certain limitations. You have to accept certain hardships or sacrifices. Uh, I don't know that I saw that message being delivered the way that it was delivered when I was a young officer. I think um, it's just my view. There was a period where I don't know. I don't, I don't want to go too further into it. I would just say that I I'm a little concerned that we don't hold the younger officers to the same level of expectations that earlier generations were held up to, and that there is a that there's a belief that you don't need to have those expectations. Which well, let's say about, for example, family life and so on. Um, back in my day, and certainly your day as well, which followed by a number of years, uh, we were taught that you know you're just going to basically give up your personal life, your family life. You're you're entering kind of a warrior class or even a monk class, and the mission comes first, and that's what you do. You've chosen this life, as they say in The Godfather. We've chosen this life, uh, and you have to live with it. But today, it's not just that, or let me say, uh, society, young people today, they they want a fuller family life. They want uh, different hours and. Totally different expectations, and that doesn't necessarily mesh well when you've joined the operations wing of CIA and are expected to do a lot of the things in in risky places or unattractive places. Let's put it that way: backwaters to learn the trade, and 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 the young people coming in the agency might not necessarily accept that. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that they're definitely like what what what, what we would call work life balance. Um, is very important mm-hmm. for this generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I when I grew up in the service, there was no talk about work life balance. It was mission. <laughs> That's uh, for sure. Now, what I will say is that the leadership of the organization in those days, I thought, always went out of its way to help people when they had a crisis. They were always there, and and um, there were certain benefits that came with being an operations officer that. You know, there were rewards for making the sacrifices that we were asked to make. And there was a esprit de corps that helped drive, I think, many of us to just keep pushing, keep going, uh, especially after 9-11, when there was a strong sense that, you know, if you let down, if you 
take too much time off. As, as one manager once told me when I said, listen, I want to take a day off. He said, you think Al-Qaeda takes days off? Hmm. In other words, if a bomb goes off in a mall somewhere in the United States, and it's because you weren't doing your job. You weren't yeah, we're not going to talk about we're not going to talk about work life balance uh, in that situation or back then. Um, I don't want to stay on this forever, but right. before we leave it, just just uh, tell me what you mean about the kind of rewards you you got or that were given because of your sacrifice. Well, one, I mean, it was just a great satisfaction to know that you were stopping terrorist attacks. You were doing good things for the country. Uh, there was a sense of accomplishment. Uh, there was a great camaraderie in the organization, especially in the directorate of operations when I was a young officer. You know, there were abuses. And I have to say that, you know, some of the, some of the, like the, it was excessive the amount of work that we were asked to do at times, right? There was probably too much demand. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, you know, I, I don't want to say that, you know, being in the office every day for 14, 16, 18 hours, seven days a week is healthy. It's not. And, you know, personally, I saw that there was very negative impact on family life for a lot of people. It was very painful for a lot of people, for families. I mean, our families pay a huge price mm -hmm. uh, going through or accepting the sacrifices that come with either going to hard places or are going to hard places, them having to stay behind and hold down the home front, you mm -hmm. know, um, be away from loved ones. So I don't, you know, I have to be clear, like I, there was probably some excess too in the way, especially after 9-11, the kind of go, go, go mentality. Mm -hmm. I think there has to be a balance. That's my personal view. I'm I'm a little concerned that it's gone, oh, like there's been a shift to the, okay, you just, you don't have to work hard and everything will be good. You can have everything and you don't have to take sacrifices. And what the big concern I have is that we, with, with younger people, maybe we're telling them you don't have to get uncomfortable, which in this business mm. or in my former line of work, there is no such thing as comfort. Comfort may come, you know, once in a while after you've accomplished something and you have the moment to take a, you know, take a deep breath and be proud of what you did. But then there's more work out there. And I had a boss once when we did something very significant, you know, we were all high-fiving ourselves and in a very good place. And he was a great leader. And he said, listen, good stuff. You know, everyone take an afternoon and be proud of yourselves, but come back tomorrow morning because for every action, there's a reaction and the enemy is going to come back at us now. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for mm -hmm. everything that we're doing today, uh, there's going to be a reaction. And unfortunately it's a, it's a spiral that I don't, you know, I don't know how we get out of this spiral, you know, hostility with Russia, hostility with uh, Iran, hostility with China, hostility with various terrorist groups. We, you know, I mean, I don't want to say we didn't create that. There are probably things that we did as a country that maybe created some problems. But the people in the intelligence community have to deal with the fact that, that those threats keep coming and they're not going anywhere. And... We come from a country where, you know, I saw this living overseas. There are a lot of people that are envious of the United States. There are a lot of people that are resentful of the United States. And um, we have to be very cognizant of that fact that they want a piece of us. I hate to say it. Yeah. Let's, let's shift over to that. Uh, you've been riding up a storm, uh, so to speak. And one of the issues, of course, you grapple with, like everyone, is Israel, Gaza, 
you wrote um, a kind of a provocative piece saying the U.S. had a failure to warn. It failed its duty to warn American citizens in Israel uh, that uh, Hamas was mounting an attack. Um, that was pretty provocative. Um, it, it begs the question for me of whether U.S. intelligence, you know, we have since learned, for example, that there wasn't such a, an intelligence failure in Israel as a leadership failure, that uh, Israeli intelligence units warned uh, their superiors uh, w- went up the chain that Hamas was most likely for real planning a very big offensive uh, and they marshaled the evidence, but leadership ignored it. And I'm wondering if, if U.S. intelligence, which has, you know, a, a frenemies relationship with the Israelis, uh, learned also of this impending uh, attack and, and, and didn't warn our leaders that it was coming. What do you think about that? Well, I think I want to be clear on the article. What I was trying to say uh, was that I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not on the inside. And if you're not on the inside, you don't know for for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't know. I just, according to media reporting, as I recall, it was a CNN report, that the Israelis did provide us with warning that there was increased threat activity. Um, and I went back and did a little open source research, and I found that in, I think it was June or May of the, of of this year, there were there was a public notification put out by the embassy in Jerusalem, warning American citizens about travel because of threats from Hamas. My question was, it, why wasn't there an update to that, especially when we had a major peace festival going on and Jewish high holidays, where we should assume mm-hmm. that there are people traveling to Israel to visit families to celebrate, and there are a lot. There's a large Jewish American community, right, or you know, dual citizen. Sure. And so my question was, somewhere, is it possible that somewhere in the U.S. government, the ball was dropped? Was it, a, was it a failure of analytic assessment? Was it a failure? You know, the State Department has a role here, too, because they have the duty to warn their part of the process. Was, the, was that even, was there a discussion, like, should we put out a public warning? As I mentioned in the article, there are regulations uh, put out by the DNI that, that that uh, regulate the duty to warn process. And there are exceptions. And, you know, in my career, I've, there have been many times when we've issued exceptions or we've asked for exceptions on the duty to warn because we don't want to burn a source. So, we, you know, there are other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, and what my big frustration is, was and remains is that the media just doesn't seem to be paying attention or for some reason they don't really ask the question, what, what exactly happened? And are we doing a good job as a government? And then look at different parts of the government. Was were, were there mistakes made, and how do we make sure we don't make those mistakes again? Because mm-hmm. I think what the Hamas attack showed us is we are not definitely, uh, you know, we're going to face more threats. Al Qaeda hasn't yeah. been completely destroyed. ISIS hasn't been completely destroyed. Those groups conduct that conducted the attacks on the Israelis can very easily conduct those attacks against Americans. By the way, you know how many twenty plus Americans died. Now, if you add the hostages who have been killed. You know, a lot of Americans died in that attack uh, on the north. And by the way, I have to say this uh, for the listeners. Lebanese Hezbollah launched an attack overnight against a civilian target in Israel, killing a number of civilians. They hit a Greek Orthodox church. Uh, I do have to ask, where is the uproar in the U.S.? Where are the protests in New York City against Hezbollah? Where are the, the marches, you know, against Hezbollah in this country 
on university campuses. I do want to ask that question because um, those groups will very easily turn their weapons on us at, at any moment. And so we just need to make sure the system is working well. Well, I'm, I don't need to restate the arguments uh, about the protests. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty much on the same page with you that I find that, you know, Americans calling for, you know, uh, Palestine to win, to be uh, from the river to the sea are, are really upsetting to me. But we have to step away for a second. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, we're back now. Let's talk about Hezbollah for just a second, by the way, just uh, from your tactical experience and background. You spent a lot of time out in that region. Um, after, the, after the last war that Hezbollah had with Israel, um, its, its leader uh, said that, uh, you know, he, he, if he had known how much damage Lebanon was going to take, he wouldn't have done it. Um, so do you see what Hamas is doing from your vast experience that Hamas is doing is just a distraction uh, to annoy Israel? Or do you think this is a prelude to full uh, Hezbollah involvement? You say, and you said in the piece, that it'll take its orders from Tehran. But I'm not sure Tehran or, or and in particular, Hezbollah wants a full-fledged conflict with Israel right now? What's, what's your current thinking about that? Yeah, great question. It's a very complicated issue. I mean, one, I do believe that Hezbollah is, at the end of the day, an Iran, Iranian proxy, that they will take their orders from the Iranians. Unfortunately, they, they put Iran ahead of Lebanon. Although in the recent years, I think, you know, you mentioned Nasrallah's statement. I think that Nasrallah and the leadership of Hezbollah know that they know that they're losing popularity and support among the Shia population in Lebanon because of the economic problems uh, that mm-hmm. tend to in the region have caused. Uh, you know, you mentioned 2006, the Israelis went after infrastructure in Beirut. Uh, I think it's very clear that if I mean, the Israelis have already taken strikes well inside of Lebanon to send the message, in my opinion, that they are going to make Lebanon pay, uh, not just Hezbollah, but all of Lebanon to help undermine support and tolerance for Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. You know, my heart goes out to the Lebanese people who are, in my opinion, being held hostage by a terrorist organization and a criminal organization, Lebanese Hezbollah, in the same way mm-hmm. the Palestinians were held hostage and are being held hostage by Hamas, who have usurped the, the Palestinian cause, or in the case of Lebanon, the Shia cause, to promote their own interest. And in the case of Lebanon, there are other communities in Lebanon which are suffering uh, and will suffer seriously, in, in my opinion, in my assessment, if Hezbollah escalates this war with the Israelis. I don't think that they want to. I think that what they wanted to do is send a message to Hamas that they were with them without escal- causing escalation. But they're not going to defeat Israel by launching, say, a barrage of rockets on Israel uh, or to escalate their rocket attacks on Israel. That's I mean, it's just to me a, a bankrupt idea like Hamas deciding that, you know, slaughtering 1200 Israeli citizens would somehow lead, you know, that Israel would overreact as they confidently predicted and it's come true. Uh, and that would somehow, you know, translate into Hamas victory over the IDF. 
I, I don't see it. And, and the same with the, any logic that Hamas would apply, that they'd somehow gain some upper hand over Israel. I, 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 don't, I, I don't see what the, their point is, but maybe I can't put myself adequately in their shoes. Well, maybe, maybe you know, one of the articles I wrote is basically, I think, that, that Hamas and the Iranians understood that they would win the information war by doing what they did. They, 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 they committed acts, crimes that that had to re- result in a very harsh response from the Israelis, and the the international media very quickly took sides, which I think they understood would happen. And in, unless Hamas is completely decimated, I think that there will be people that say Hamas won this conflict because yes, the Israelis are are taking out commanders, they're taking out infrastructure. But every day that this war goes on, the Israelis are looking worse and worse. And again, nobody's making a lot of noise that Hezbollah just killed civilians. But if the Israelis take a strike and some civilians or refugees are killed, which is horrible, but it's it, we're, they're at war, uh, the international media, interna- uh, international organizations uh, immediately condemn the Israelis. And, you know, the the I think part of this was the Iranians and Hamas wanted to derail uh, the Abrams Accord or any kind of rapprochement sure. between the Israelis and, and the Gulf states. Uh, you know, I think that was one of their goals. Set that and back. And they su- succeeded at, yeah. Yeah, let's hope that it can get back on track. But yes, for now, at least they've temporarily delayed that. Uh, one of the issues that I'm, you know, I, I've been following very closely is Turkey's response you know, in July, for the first time in years, Erdogan met with uh, Netanyahu and you know there is there has been a lot of progress in the Turkish um, the Turkish Israeli relationship. This is this whole conflict has set all that back mm-hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. And so I'm glad that you brought that up. So does Turkey have a mediating role to play in bringing an end to this conflict? Well, I think that the Turks want to. You know, Erdogan would love to do that. He's offered in many other conflicts to be a mediator. I'm not sure that it's possible now. He's it's become very personalized. I read, I saw today in the news that he called Netanyahu, you know, a, a fascist, a Nazi. He, you know, uh, in October he claimed that Hezbollah was not. Uh, sorry, Hamas was not a terrorist organization. They were. What do they say? Resistance fighters. And so I'm not sure that the Israelis would accept them playing a mediating role right now. Maybe in the future. Um, I don't mm. know. But, but mm. you know, this definitely has derailed whatever rapprochement was going on between Ankara and Tel Aviv, which is not in U.S. national security interests. It's unfortunate. And so, again, you know, Hezbollah and, and Hezbollah, one of the commanders uh, said, you know, we don't care about the Palestinians. Right. We're not here to defend mm-hmm. Palestinians. We're here to promote our cause. And so if it means killing a bunch of Palestinians or having them as cannon fodder. OK. But we're going to get, you know, we, we've we've decimated Israel in the in the eyes of the world. Right. Yeah, I, I <laughs> it's very difficult to predict how this is all going to unfold. Uh, clearly, Israel is on the losing end of the information war stick. And rightfully so, one could say, because of its strategies for, you know, taking the uh, committing the loss of thousands some 20,000 Palestinians in its search for Hamas. It's only going to get worse. 
I, I, I don't know how we get, we all get out of this uh, alive, so to speak. Um, and uh, although I tend to believe, and I'm not the expert, but I tend to believe that Iran re- really cautious about committing itself fully to this conflict. Um, it, uh, but then I also note that it's begun, it's resumed enriching uranium, um, which is scary. Uh, um, so let's go from that mousetrap to another one, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, let me ask you this, if, if, Congress fails to provide funding for Ukraine or provide funding in a timely fashion to Ukraine, which mm-hmm. is now, what role does CIA have? Or does CIA have a kind of virtually cost-free role to play in helping the Ukrainians stave off the Russians? No, I don't think any, there's anything cost-free. I mean, it's all part of the policy of the administration, right, under oversight from Congress. You know, the, I'm in a tactical level. Well, I mean, I know. think, okay, first of all, let's remember CIA's commission is, you know, what the, what is foreign... It's strategic. Well, it's foreign intelligence collection, you know, foreign counterintelligence analysis, covert, you know, covert action, the things that are authorized for the agency. Uh, I, you know, the agency can do a lot, but the agency, this is the challenge we've had in other places, in my opinion. For example, in Afghanistan, the agency ended up taking on a lot of mission that was not agency mission. We can't replace other important parts of the U.S. government, AID, uh, State Department, DOD, who who are designed and better staffed to do the lot like large scale programs. So going back to congressional, like to the to the uh, negotiations on funding for Ukraine, I personally believe that, that the agreement will be reached. Uh you know, it's unfortunate that it it was delayed the way it was. I have my personal views on what some of the mistakes were made. Uh, this, you know, I have an article that's coming out about this, which basically says, let's hope, let's all pray as Americans that the, that the storyline will be uh, better late than never instead of too little too late. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not we like it, those members of Congress that have been opposing or questioning that, that amount of assistance to our foreign partners without doing something about the southern border or who've tied those issues together are speaking on behalf of their constituents. They're not speaking on behalf of Putin. And and this silliness that we have in the United States where we're blaming foreign governments for all of our internal problems, it's got to stop. That's what third world countries do. They look for conspiracy theories and blame other people for their problems. These are problems that are self-made and and they need to be self-resolved. I do think that after the, you know, Congress goes back in a session, they will come to an agreement and Ukraine will get assistance from the United States, as will Taiwan, as will Israel, continued assistance. Um, but it, yeah, I, I mean, and and something will be done about the, the border, which is also a national, in my opinion, a national security problem. And sure. it's been ignored for too long or, you know, the, the parties have been unable to talk about this like adults. We've got to do that. Yeah, there hasn't been any, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but there hasn't been any significant legislation since H.W. Bush, uh, who, whose motivation was concerned about, you know, seasonal workers and so on. Uh, we're well past that time now, and it's just sunk into a viper pit of rhetorical attacks on each other and not dealing with the larger issue of maybe needing a, a some kind of uh, you know massive economic plan for Central America that might help alleviate the problems there, but that's that 
that's a mess. Well, let me let me um, let me just share a quick story, a little anecdote with you. I was in Turkey. Yeah, recently, please. In, I was in Turkey recently, and on the ride to the airport, the cab driver. We started talking, and he said, "Oh, you know, my son is going to the United States. He's a mechanic." And I said, mm-hmm. "Oh, you know, he got a visa. It was an auto mechanic. He's a single guy. He's uh, twenty years old." And he said, "Oh no, he's going to Mexico, and they're like smugglers are going to bring him across the border." Huh. And I said, well, isn't that a little risky? Maybe he shouldn't do that. And the father said, oh, no, his, all his friends are doing it. And not only is he going there, but they said they can bring him back out to come visit us and then go back again. So that tells good me Lord. we have a problem. I'm sure this young man is a good, decent individual. And, you know, uh, he just wants to come to the United States to find work. That's what his father said. You know, he can make much more money as a mechanic here than in Turkey. So the economic incentive is there. But unfortunately, there are a lot of bad elements, both state and non-state actors, that will use that uh, ability to bring people into this country for not good purposes. And so we, we need to address well, that. That's a national I security think, issue, my opinion. Yeah, my uh, no, I get that. And my, my feeling is that the issue of terrorists crossing the border has been hyped uh, for political reasons. But... Um, there's no doubt that there's potential, given the porous border, for bringing bad actors. But we have to step away for a second. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, we're back now. Do you have any sense from your time and service that bad actors, uh, uh, adversary intelligence services like... Uh, Iran and North Korea or anyone else is actually exploiting this loophole, let's call it? I think if you if you look historically, even like, say, the last five to 10 years, there have been those individuals who have used the, the, the border, the illegal crossing of the border to put people in the United States with ill intent. That's one. Two, uh, having work CT issues, it's a constant concern. It becomes very, very difficult to track people in the United States for a number of reasons, you know, especially like for us, we would have to drop it and give it over to our partners on the domestic side. And it's a challenge for them when they have many other challenges going on. So it's an added headache, in my opinion. And three, you know, intelligence wise, the Russians have used illegal travelers. uh, Other countries have used illegal travelers many times, and I'm sure they still do to get people into the United States to do certain things. And, you know, I think it would be naive to say that that porousness on the border is not a national security challenge issue. Sure. I think it is. And so going, but, you know, going back to Ukraine, I think you maybe at the end of the day, this may be a good story. Maybe it's going to force both sides of uh, on the aisle to come up with hash out an agreement. I think the Ukrainians are going to get the support. Uh, I hope it's not too little too late. I hope it is, you know, in time. It's probably hard for them during the new year and the Christmas celebrations. And by the way, this is the first time in, I think, in their history they celebrated the 25th of mm-hmm. Christmas. Western Christmas. So yeah. let's all imagine, you know, being in a in a trench filled with cold water, covered in snow on the front lines fighting against the Russians. It's probably... I'll say this, when I was in Ukraine in September, some of the Ukrainian military officers told us that every time they got a shipment of American equipment, the morale among their troops went sky high. Even if they were outnumbered 10 to 1, they felt like they had like they were going to win. So that aid is absolutely, absolutely essential. It is an investment in our own national security, for sure. 
And I, I, I sh- uh, I'm scared to death of the idea that we will not continue the aid because we will be seen as having failed at a moment of history where we needed to step up and do something heroic or just. And I, I, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope that we can you know, do, do the right thing. Before we leave this, uh, some uh, Ukrainian military leaders have talked about if they didn't get aid, they'd have to fall back to guerrilla warfare. Going back to World War II, the OSS, early CIA, paramilitary days, which was a very had a very mixed record with that, uh, fighting uh, Soviets, um, Soviet regimes. Um, does CIA have a role to play, ongoing role? I would guess it, it does. Not that the Ukrainians need a lot of tutoring on partisan warfare against the against the Russians, but you see some sort of CIA role. Should that happen? Oh, or is that military? Is that again? I mean, we have a no boots on the ground policy, which is virtually true. There are some boots, but uh, so the Defense Department can't undertake a large role in advising Ukrainian guerrilla troops or any other kind of troops, special forces. Uh, so. Is this where CIA would fill in the vacuum? Oh, I think that the agency could have a role. But would be would it want a role like that? It should be a partnership, right, with our partners and especially special operations commands, uh, maybe other elements of the U.S. government. But definitely, I mean, you, you touched on a really important point. Like, we have a lot to learn from the Ukrainians. One of the things I kept arguing for the last 10 years of my career was we should be inviting these countries to train us. You know, the Ukrainians are extremely good. You know, I worked, I had the fortune of working in some countries, you know, with services that were not super well equipped. They were not, you know, well funded, but they were extremely good at certain things. And I think sometimes our arrogance is, you know, well, we're going to come teach you how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I won't get into it, but my experience with some of those folks, including the Ukrainians, is they're really good. And we have, mm-hmm. they know more, for example, about the Russians than we could ever hope to know. Because mm. it was like twin brothers to a point, right? Mm-hmm. And Abel well, and Cain. Yeah, I mean, they, they know mm-hmm. each other. They know the tactics. And I think this is one reason why in the beginning of the war, they were so good in the information warfare space. They, they ran so many successful operations against the Russians because they knew the playbook. Now, what I would also say is, and I like listeners should understand this too, I've been saying this for a long time based on my experience dealing with the Russia issue, the Russians learn from their mistakes very quickly and you, and you should never underestimate them. We as a community, we as Americans should never, ever underestimate them. They are uh, brutal. They are, you know, they're economically, they're not in a good position, good place. Uh, they can't mass produce anything well. But uh, they they learn very quickly from their mistakes, and they can do things in small tranches that are very very good. And and yet they still seem to be hampered by not having an effective NCO corps, which is what our army runs on. Right, um, sergeants who take initiative and lead men as the battle conditions change, and and they've been hampered by that from the beginning. But they can bring brute force to the to the issue um before we go i have to go back to this this article that you wrote it's really interesting historical argument uh uh, um uh, article about the soviets influence operations during world war ii 
And you posited a very interesting piece is that Soviet influence agents helped push Japan into attacking the United States. You want to briefly just tell us what that's all about? Yeah, so thank you for asking me about that. That was called Operation Snow. Uh, it was based on uh, Stalin gave orders to the his intelligence services before the Second World War, before the German, um, before Operation Barbarossa, for them to figure out a way to instigate a war between the United States and Imperial Japan. Stalin understood that he couldn't fight a two-front war. Um, historically, there had been a number of, of large-scale battles along the um, Manchurian Soviet border between the Japanese and the Soviets. There was competition for resources in the Far East. The Japanese definitely had their ambitions for taking part of the Far East. And there were two camps in the imperial court, one which I think was called the North Group. The other was the South Group. One wanted to fight against the U.S. and, and the ally or Great Britain, Australia uh, in the Pacific. And the other wanted to go after the Soviets in Manchuria and into the Soviet Far East. And so Stalin used the intelligence services concocted, put together an operation, which they called Operation Snow, which was based on the name of their main, the main player, one of their agents of influence, a guy by the name of Harry Dexter White, who there's, mm -hmm. there's still a big debate to this day on whether he was an actual Soviet agent or whether he was just in, like a useful, what do they call it? I don't want to say useful idiot because the guy was actually brilliant. He was a very smart man. Uh, a very high Treasury Department official, yes. and he was a staunch anti-fascist. Yes. Um, uh, and that caused a lot of Americans a lot in the West to say, hey, the Soviets are fighting the Nazis uh, and we ought to be real allies with them and befriend them and support them. Yes. So I, and I, this is before we got into the war yeah. and, and the Nazis were slaughtering people. Yes. So. And so uh, the Soviets used him in what capacity is still debated to this day, but they used him to influence the White House in their position on uh, – some kind of, you know, improving relations or accepting overtures from the Japanese uh, to reduce tensions in the Pacific and in the Far, uh, far East. So in Vietnam or in Indochina, um, in China itself. And from the, from the Japanese side, they also used their very famous uh, spy journalist, by the way, sir, Richard Zorge. Mm -hmm, famous. Very famous, who used his network in Japan to also influence the imperial court to push for uh, in favor of war with the United States instead of um, the Soviet Union. And the Russians claim to this day that it was a very successful operation. Uh, they're very proud of it. There's probably some debate there. They, they may exaggerate the level of success they had. But but my point in the article is they definitely they definitely had an operation to manipulate the United States and Japan using their agent networks, and they use that uh, to bring us to war. And so we should never forget that. Other countries manipulate us, and they use active measures campaigns, like the Soviets did in Operation Snow, to get results that they deem are, are good for them, but may not be mm -hmm. good for the United States. We shouldn't be naive and think that that does not happen. We shouldn't be naive. We try to do it as well. I mean, it's the game of nations. It's a secret side of diplomacy. Um, it's um, clandestine and sometimes successful, sometimes not. Um, and but we are certainly in a war for influence in the in the world right now. But, but, both, yeah, Ukraine and and Gaza and uh, yeah, 
That's a, that's a subject for another day. Uh, Glenn Korn, uh, there's so much I'd love to talk to you about, and, and I guess I'll have to do it off camera. Okay. <laughs> Over another lunch because uh, we have, we've run out of time here, but this has been so much fun. Uh, you spent so many, I mean, you speak Russian, you speak Turkish, you speak all these uh, languages. We didn't even talk about Azerbaijan, which you've also written about saying we ought to be paying more attention to what's going on there. So I guess we'll have to just have you back. Well, let me, so, let me give a footstomp to that one. You know, the, the Armenian uh, prime minister has taken a very courageous uh, set of steps to bring peace uh, with the Azeris. And in my opinion, the United States government and our European partners need to do everything we can to help the Armenians and the Azeris get to a, a peace settlement, a peace agreement, and settle that conflict and not allow other actors in the region, including mm -hmm. Russia and Iran, to destabilize that situation. Uh, you know, it'd be a big win for everybody if, if peace is brought to the South Caucasus. I know a lot of people don't know about this issue. Maybe the diaspora here, the Armenian diaspora, maybe, you know, some people, but you know, it's it's a really important issue. It's not getting any attention. Uh, and it may be one ray of light in a very ugly world right now. From your lips to all his ears, yeah, sure. as we say. Um, thank you, Glenn. Thank you, sir. Great to have Thanks you. Thanks for having on me show. on. Have a happy new year. You too. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete archive on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, do check out the spytalk.co news site on Substack, where we offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses on the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Just Google SpyTalk or hey, use AI and you'll quickly find your way there. This edition of the SpyTalk podcast was smoothly produced, as always, by Kanai and edited by Molly Hawking for MSW Media. Oh, by the way, that music you've been hearing, that's the birds, of course, with the immortal turn, turn, turn. Their 1965 version of the Pete Seeger song, inspired by the Bible's book of Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season, it says. Indeed. And in this season, this week, we wish all our listeners a joyous and hopeful new year. I'm Jeff Stein for Spy Talk. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.